blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And Father, as we come to your word today, we remember your promise that you would send your spirit that he might lead us into all truth. And so today we ask that you lead and guide us into the truth of your great reconciling love and all that you have done in the body of the flesh of our Lord Jesus on our behalf. And so we ask you to speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. During the first century of the Roman Empire, the spiritual ethos of those nations around the Mediterranean were not a great deal different than the modern American scene. Religion was assumed to be an important part of ordinary life. There was a vast array of gods, a pantheon of gods available to you. And from that pantheon, you could curate curate your own experience and your own expression of religion. It didn't so much matter which gods you chose, as long as they didn't conflict with your duties as a Roman citizen. Beyond that, it was just your taste, your preference. Choose your own experience in your religious expression. The gospel that Paul proclaims and that he preaches, that he announces that he is a minister of, entered into this amorphous spiritual soup, a virtual alphabet of divinities and many different religious expressions. But the gospel was not just one more religious experience and expression on offer. Larry Hurtado, in his really wonderful little book called The Destroyer of the Gods, he's writing in this book about how Christianity actually went from such a small movement to being the religion of the Roman Empire across 250 years. And what he says there is that Christianity was not just another type of religious experience, that it actually in the first century was a completely new kind of religion, that nothing had interfaced with Greco-Roman culture that was like it. And inevitably, this meant that there were challenges. Christian converts were coming out of this broad religious experience and expression where they really chose their own path. And there was a tendency to blend and to synthesize elements from their past with their new Christian faith. And what we've seen in Colossae is that this was a young church and that there were many signs of life and health, but they were also interacting with some false teachers. And those false teachers were pushing beliefs from that background. They were pushing empty doctrines that de-emphasized Jesus and focused upon various mystical practices, saying that those mystical practices were the secret sauce to really gaining an audience with God, that if you really wanted to commune with him, that you needed to know these practices. And so in effect, what they were doing was supplementing the gospel. They were adding something on top of Jesus 
something that you had to have, something that was necessary in order to commune with God. These false teachers were zealous, and they probably had many commendable qualities. They were religious, and perhaps you would say, oh, well, bless their heart. But Paul is saying here that their religious fervor and their religious excitement is not sufficient. That our zeal has to be in accord with the truth, that it has to be in line with the gospel. Because to supplement the gospel is ultimately to supplant it. It is to undo it. And the false teachers were challenging the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus. And they were severing themselves from Christ their head. And so Paul writes to this church that's in the midst of this context, in the, in the midst of this contest, in the midst of this trial, and he's writing to them very practically. And he's pointing to the preeminence and the sufficiency of Jesus as we've seen in verses 15 through 20. As he takes us into the heart and depth of eternity past, Jesus, the true substance, the image of the living God, the creator, the agent of all creation, for whom and by whom and through whom all things were made. He, the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, who came into time and space and in his body gave himself as a sacrifice. And now Paul is going to come down from the heights of all of this wonderful theologizing about Jesus. And he's going to speak to you. And he's going to speak to me about the effects of what this Jesus has done on our behalf. And he's doing so in verses 21 and 20 through 23 to encourage us about how to remain Christian as we navigate this complex and tricky cultural situation where there are many different religious expressions and experiences on offer around us. And how do we remain true to the gospel? There's three things we'll see that he lays out in these verses about what it means to remain true to the gospel and what we must do in order to stay steadfast. First, in verse 21, we see that we must recall our dilemma. Paul begins and says, and you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. It's important to note here where he begins in verse 21, and he begins by calling the church to remember their life prior to their conversion. And he uses two words to describe their experience prior to their conversion, that they were alienated and that they were hostile in mind. Alienation refers to that separation that exists between God and human beings. That alienation is not something that exists by creational design. This was not the way God created the world, but rather that alienation was introduced as human beings turned from God and rebelled against him. There's a barrier from God's side in which his ability to fellowship with us is inhibited because there has been a relational break due to the rebellion. There's a 
inhibition on our side, a barrier that exists because now we live in our shame and our sin causes us to further alienate ourselves from God. And so this word is strong to indicate how far we are removed from God. But not only are we alienated, Paul also says that we were hostile in mind. It's easy for us to miss exactly what this reference involves because we have trouble translating the word mind here. And the, the term refers not to the brain as the intellectual organ. This is not what he means by mind. But rather, this term means something more like the mindset. The word in the Greek was actually used to translate the Hebrew word heart. And so it's pointing to something much more holistic that we were hostile in the core of our being, in our mindset upon the world, in our heart, at the center of our affections and who we are. And so alienated, hostile in mind. And this condition results in one thing, doing evil deeds. And many people balk at that point and say, well, that doesn't exactly describe me. This sounds like a, a wicked and awful person, and perhaps I know people like this, but this doesn't seem to describe me. And this is where the true offense of the gospel enters in. And what was difficult then and there in the first century remains difficult here and now. Because what is being described here is doing evil deeds. The person who is alienated and the person who is hostile in mind does exactly describe us. That to do evil deeds is simply to be set on a life of autonomy and independence from God. It doesn't mean that we're absolutely as wicked as we can possibly be, but it does mean that our mind is turned against God, that we do not have fellowship with him, that that fellowship is impaired, that it's been broken, and that we are turned to ourselves and that we want to be the judge and the arbiter of truth. We want to determine right and wrong for ourselves. And friends, this is who we are as the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. G.K. Chesterton once wrote in uh, to the London Times, a question was put out by the newspaper, and it said, what is wrong with the world? He quipped in a very short letter back, said, dear friends, I am... Yours, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> and friends, this gets it. And this is what we have to recall. Paul says that you once were alienated and hostile in mind. We have to recall it and we have to own it. That this is the dilemma. That this is the problem in which all human beings are born into. That this is the rebellion of humanity. And we all share we all share in this fundamental condition of being alienated and hostile. This is the problem we face. And so Paul, in order to encourage us to continue on, he calls us back to the remembrance of this, putting us in that helpless and dependent place. And so then he takes us to the second step of his argument. In verse 22, we see that we all also must embrace the solution. 
And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Once we gain sight of the dilemma, we can begin to appreciate the solution and embrace it. Because Paul says to be reconciled, for that alienation to end, that there has to be a death. And specifically, this refers to the death of Jesus in our place. We see there that there is no cosmetic solution to our dilemma. We can't just clean up our acts, knocking off our bad habits and characteristics, and make everything right with God. That doesn't undo the barrier. We can't just adopt a few spiritual practices, learning to pray or perhaps to meditate, to reconcile ourselves to God. We can't just start volunteering, seeking to give back to others, being kind and generous in order to reconcile ourselves to God. We can't just start attending church or other religious meetings in order to reconcile ourselves to God. Those would all be cosmetic solutions to a dilemma that is far too profound. And what Paul argues here is that we've been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That Jesus, the righteous one, without sin, gave himself in our place on the cross And that this is the only means of reconciliation. That he received the alienation into his own body. And now those who believe in him and trust in him are reconciled to God in and through him. That this is the only way that alienation can be addressed. In his death, Jesus receives all of the punishment and alienation due to us. And rising from the dead, he now ascends to God's right hand. And friends, this is Ascension Sunday, the day we remember that in our calendar year. That Jesus is at God's right hand, and he's not there as a ghost. He's there in a physical body. And it's there that he intercedes on our behalf. That humanity has been brought into the presence of God in the righteous and the holy one. And there he now vouches for you. And he vouches for me. And what Paul argues is that it is through him that we are called holy and blameless and above reproach. And the phrase above reproach could be translated without accusation. And friends, how are you holy And how are you blameless? And how are you without accusation before God? How does that happen? If left to yourself, it doesn't. But Jesus there, standing in God's presence, vouches on our behalf. And in him, when we're in union with him, believing in him and trusting in him, we are considered holy. We are considered blameless. We're considered without accusation. We stand before God in him and him alone. And it's here 
that Paul is pressing us to believe and to trust in the sufficiency of Jesus. And the other mediators that were being tossed around by the false teachers, he's saying you don't need them. That you have one who has died in your place, who has given himself in the penalty for your sin and your rebellion, your alienation. And because he was the righteous one, he has been raised and he now intercedes for you and presents you to God, sufficient, sufficient in himself. And so we embrace this solution. And finally, in verse 13, we see that we also must accept the challenge before us. Excuse me, in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And it's here that Paul states the condition of the gospel and the condition of receiving all the inheritance that's promised to those who believe in Jesus. All the great benefits of the gospel and the condition is simple. That yes, you will receive all of that, but you must continue in what he says is the faith. And by the faith there, he is not talking about the act of believing but rather he's talking about a certain content, a body of doctrine, the gospel, the phrase he uses just in the next term. And he's referring to not departing and adding to it and supplementing, piling up other things that are necessary for communion with God, but having the courage, the bravery to remain simple and true to what God has revealed about himself and how God is affecting reconciliation and not how humans have dreamed about how that reconciliation should work. But allowing the gospel to be sufficient for that reconciliation. He then adds two words, stable and steadfast. That this, in these two words, this is the way, the manner in which we are to continue in the faith. And both of those words come from the world of first century architecture, and it's referring to the foundation. And so we're to be stable and steadfast, holding fast to that foundation, that foundation of the faith, of the gospel, not adding to it, not going beyond it, not coming up short of it, and not exceeding it. We're to thrive on that doctrinal foundation upon which we've been planted And Paul wants to protect the church then and there. And he wants to protect the church here and now from those who would supplement, from those who would add. Because in supplementing, friends, we end up undermining and supplanting and destroying. It always brings something less than Jesus. And so Paul is contending for you and for me to continue, to hold fast That what perseverance in the Christian life looks like is to hold fast in faith, to remain anchored where we were planted, in the Christian gospel, in the truth and the beauty of Jesus, in that stinging accusation that comes through the gospel, that we're alienated and that we're hostile towards God. But yet, Jesus says you're holy. Jesus says you're blameless. Jesus says you're 
above reproach, without accusation, before God, because of his work on your behalf. And Paul is pleading with you, hold fast to that. Don't add to it. Don't put your works on top of it. Don't put your spiritual practices and your mystical flights on it. Don't put your service and your things on top of that. Yes, the Christian life involves obedience, but it's not in order to reconcile yourself to God. Jesus alone is sufficient for that. And so, friends, let's find our confidence. Let's find our trust. Let's find our sufficiency in Jesus and in him alone. Let's pray. Almighty God, we do give thanks for all the good things that you have revealed to us in your Son. We thank you that he, the image of the invisible God, has come on our behalf. That he, the truth and the substance of the living God, has entered into human flesh, has given himself in our place, has been raised, and now that he intercedes for us, and that in him... We are called holy. In him, we are called blameless. In him, we are free from accusation. In the beauty of this great gospel, we ask God that you would sustain our faith, that we would believe and trust in this firm foundation and we not be swayed and drawn to other things. Give us the simplicity of faith that doesn't supplement, that doesn't add, that doesn't seek to increase or advance by introducing new things. And Father, we're thankful for the great privileges that we share as your family. You grant us freedom of access to bring our prayers and requests to you, to make our supplications known. You command us to do so, and you also promise that you hear as we come in and through your Son. And so, God, today we do ask that you would fill the world with the knowledge of your glory and that the world would be filled with the knowledge of your glory even as the waters cover the sea, be full and suffused with the knowledge of the gospel. And so, God, we particularly pray for our brother Tommy Park, our mission partner with RUF at the University of North Florida. And God, we pray that this ministry will abound, that the gospel will spread on the college campus, that young men and young women will be invited to faith and will find themselves believing and trusting in Jesus and looking to him as the sufficient one who can deliver them from their alienation from you. Father, we pray also for all of those who are in authority. We especially remember our governor, Ron DeSantis, we remember also our state legislature and the awesome task and responsibility that you have granted to them. We ask that you get, grant them wisdom to govern well, that they will promote what is good and what is right and what is true in our state. Father, this morning we remember those who suffer, those who mourn, those who are grieved in our congregation. And we ask that you, the God of all comfort, will show comfort to them. We especially remember Sue Forsythe, recently hospitalized. And we ask God that you grant her your mercy. We pray for Elizabeth Garnett, 
She suffers from stage four cancer. We pray, God, that you draw near and give her comfort and hope in all your promises to her. We pray for Linda Gibbs. She continues to endure with shoulder pain. For Garganius, she suffers from cancer. For Wayne Noble and Sandy Reynolds. And for also all the unspoken requests that are here today. God of all comfort, God of all compassion, have mercy on us and meet our needs. And Father, we also pray this morning for the children and youth of Christ Church. You have granted us stewardship, and we give thanks for the multiplication of children in our midst. And God, we ask that by your Spirit, you will teach them of your mighty deeds and of your wonders that you have worked in Jesus. And we ask that you would prepare them to be the next generation of the church who will keep your covenant and walk in your ways. Guide them through their own cultural moment. Teach them your ways. Write your law upon their hearts. And all these things we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.